Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders network Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders Come and find yours I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm waiting to be found And I'm building rockets This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 712. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, tell you what's coming today's show. We have The Big Wimpera by Laird Barron. That is the main fiction. Then it is that time in the month where it is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, we're looking back genre history. So, straight in with The Big Wimper by Laird Barron. Laird Barron is an expat Alaskan. He is the author of several books, including the Imago Sequence and other stories, Swift Chase and Blood Standard. Currently, Barron lives in Rondout Valley of New York State and is at work on tales about evil that men do. This story originally appeared in Weird World War for 2022. Now, this story is narrated by our very own Will Staggle. Will Staggle is proud to be a member of the Starships Over team. <laughs> Thank you, Will, for this, lad. Recruiting narrators for the podcast Stellar Stories. Will works as a creative, professional and occasional musician from his adopted home in Tucson, Arizona. So, the Starships Over is very proud to present. The Big Whimper. The Further Adventures of Rex. 2 million CE. By Laird Barron. Read to you by Will Stagel. Playback interrupted. Assessing. Standby. Quantum fragment record of unknown subject. 1. There is neither beginning nor end, only an endless ring of time. These fleeting images, these tachyon darts of thought, originate from a location in the far-flung past, or across a divide of dark matter during an epoch yet to come.
There is no time, no distance, no beginning, no end. Cascade failure. System reset in three, two, one. Unknown subject two. In the beginning, a hominid cracked two stones together and discovered fire. Fire drew you to a cave mouth on a cold night. You remember the soft flames, the scent of roasting elk, and how you slunk up into the cave, tail low, fangs bared. Starving. Canines have helped mankind fight other animals and men for a long time. You were right there, side by side, for all the maiming and burning and conquering, muzzled in gore, ears pricked. System resetting. Stand by. Unknown three. I snuffle smell, true good. Enemies all around. Snap bite. Breathe fire. Too many. Too many. Breathe fire. Breathe. System reset complete. Resume quantum playback. We are surrounded by a forest. The canopy goes on for endless kilometers. Leaves drip in the gloomy coolness. Local time is a few minutes after sunrise, autumn, of two million CE. I blink away the sensation I've nodded off and then return to myself from across a gulf of eons and darkness. A pale red light blinks behind my eye. A proximity alarm. Tell me your story, Spot, says the haunter of the wood. He stated this request each time we meet. A ritual? A test? A figment of my increasingly disturbed subconscious? Spot is a slur. My name is Rex. I rest my haunches near a hollow log where I sleep at night. The haunter visits at random intervals, perhaps to probe my security measures. Today he occupies a patch of underbrush, an unctuous shadow whose red eyes glimmer, reminiscent of my own warning beacon. What could the haunter be? He, it, shifts as ink spilled into water shifts, changing, cycling through forms that are vaguely monstrous. My powerful nose whiffs nothing, an absence of scent. I choose not to look closer, despite the fact I'm able to perceive a spectrum of light frequencies. Sometimes, ignorance is best. I've learned this lesson through painful experience. I'm also worried my vision will rebound, only revealing myself. Tell me your story so far, Rex. The end of Act 1. The beginning of Act 2. I dislike the haunter. His manner is over-familiar. He might be dangerous. Possibly hostile. But I'm lonely. I was in the thick of a fight. World War IV. The tribes of man squared off in a battle royal that raged for almost a decade. What about World War III? As expected, an exchange of nukes, and everybody said, Oops. Peace reigned for a while, until the world was ready for four. Civilizations developed nanotechnology, continental missile defense systems, biological counteragents. That meant it would be a real slog. How did the war start? Weren't you there? Yes and no. The haunter sounds coy. I may have nodded off. 
Besides, I like how you tell it. How does any war start, I say? A pebble becomes a landslide. How did it end? Deus ex machina. The gray, as in the gray eminence. Yes, humans and their gallows humor. We both know the story by heart. One day, an object resembling a planetoid entered our solar system. The way a slug just sort of shows up on one's doorstep. It orbited Earth, and we soon discovered this planetoid was actually an invasion transport. Warring nation declared a truce and turned their attention to the heavens. The aliens' gravitational weapons wreaked havoc. Next, they disrupted the atmosphere by exciting global volcanic activity. Ash clouds blocked the sun, mimicking a nuclear winter. Human and animal populations were subsequently infected with a virulent pathogen via oxygen with water supplies. Infected organisms functioned as slaves of the invaders. Resistance was snuffed out in its cradle. Instead of Armageddon, humanity curled into a ball and faded into oblivion. The world ended with a whimper, the haunter says, as though I've narrated aloud. Clever. I skipped to the thrilling conclusion. Several of my battalion, who survived the initial chaos, decided to make our exit in a blaze of glory. We rallied for a last stand against hordes of shambling zombies. My human mother wore scales of silver. Her guns cut apart a mountain. She'd overridden security protocols and brought my entire suite of combat systems online. I howled radioactive fire, and our enemies charred. Before it got really good, the mountain fell on me. And you died, says the hunter. My internal warning light brightens. Living entombment. Same difference, perhaps. For the love of God, Montresor, yet here you are, relic of antiquity. Time passed, or so it appears. A spark animated me, and I revived. Dug through a few hundred million tons of rubble until I felt sunlight on my snout. Until I sniffed green grass and not decayed earth. You've been awake for how long? A while. I refuse to admit the extent that my memory banks are fried. The big whimper may have been eons ago, but due to my decaying ability to discern subjective from objective time, I experience the war fresh every day. Sometimes I can't escape the feeling it never really ended. The sun is your sun, the hunter says. However, the stars are no longer your stars, nor the sky. The land is old and new. Evil creeps through the forest. I've adapted. As ever it was, the hunter says. You are Rex, king of dogs. I'm the king of nothing. Dogs have gone extinct. Wrong. Dingoes have returned to the southern continent. Painted dogs gather in the sub-Saharan. Jackals and hyenas, too. I say with derision. Foxes. Coyotes. None of these are the proper canines. None are real dogs. Been around this world once or twice, and have yet to encounter your like. The size of a horse and erudite. Girdled by titanium alloys and microcircuitry. You're sweet generous. Good boy. Special boy. Are you real, though? I bay at the moon. I roll in shit. The memory of every dog who ever lived flows in my blood. More metal than flesh. A mind is divided between animal and machine. Odd that your masters impute intricacy of thought in a fluffy weapon. 
The masters worked in mysterious ways. What a woofing contradiction. Did Geppetto make you? Did the blue fairy bring you alive? The poet who claimed to contain multitudes had nothing on me. In fact, I met Whitman, the haunter says. Late one night in his youth, vectored attack and stream right into his consciousness. Ages before the big whimper, of course, when the world was less complicated. This is a new conversational gambit. The alarm flashes faster, practically incandescent. I play along. Animal heaven is hardly complicated. Creatures great and small struggle for survival, as in the beginning before the advent of man. Simple. Pure. Poor doggo. This isn't heaven. You aren't even aware of how many times you've given up the ghost. On each occasion of your death, you are painstakingly rebuilt. Renewed. Perhaps stronger, yet the split in your consciousness remains. A crack in the database, as it were. You forget events, which you should not. In addition to identifying roots and tubers, you're an expert in quantum computers? Gaze inward and behold the truth of my observation. Snorting, I initiate a search program. Lo and behold, I encounter a new data corruption in the neighborhood of a century prior. I say new because that crack in my database spreads slowly, yet inexorably. Checking the damage never occurs to me until the haunter suggests I do so. See, you should perform internal diagnostics more often. The haunter's tone indicates a smile. Men are gone. Dogs are gone. The conquering devils are gone. Where did the gray fuck off to anyway? Excellent question. I'll ponder it on my morning stroll. Since you'll be out and about, I recommend a visit to Avaxia. She's entertaining. A new prisoner you'll want to meet. The Crimson Empire is keeping prisoners these days? A human. Quite mysterious. No humans survived the last great war. At the last, entire populations lay in fruiting piles, deliquescing under a gray webbing that spanned continents. Humanity's cities were reclaimed by wilderness, its bones embedded in the earth. However, it seems pointless to argue with the talking Rorschach pattern, so I grunt noncommittally. Oh, and Spot? Yes. Talking to yourself is never a positive sign. The haunter's voice fades into the susurration of the leaves, the creaking branches. Familiar, disquieting, gone. I count two minutes, then power down my plasma beam and sonic weaponry. The red light slows, dims, and fades as my pounding heart settles into a normal rhythm. It would be easy to say to hell with antiquated notions of obligation, tuck my nose under my tail, and have a snooze. I resist such canine instincts and prepare for travel. Later that morning, I kill an elk the traditional way. I punch auxiliary servos, accelerate to 120 kilometers per hour, and scatter the herd. An old bull turns to fight. I shear off his head before his nervous system can process the information. Meat is fuel. Fuel will be necessary for the expedition to come. I lope southwest, out of the forest and across the broken terrain and the earth changes. Boulders and sand and occasional dunes. The sand is as red as grains flowing from a tightened splintered hourglass. To the east, the reconfigured Atlantic wallows, icy dark. Horrors roll in its depths, according to the screeching gulls. Due west, 
more forests and plains. Bisons have returned, and saber-toothed cats to hunt them. Wetlands lie to the south, cypress jungles and everglades, ruled by monstrous lizards and great predatory birds. For the south spread lush, rotting jungles, where I'd rather not tread for fear of spiders, centipedes, and other worth-slithering abominations. The analytical part of my consciousness protests the falsity of this strange world, the sterile yet fecund nature of its composition into a diverse set of biomes. Biomes arranged meticulously as a biologist's terrarium. Doubts plague me. Even at my best, I'd be ill-equipped to grapple mysteries of weird biomes and vanished aliens. My mind threatens to spin in circles, chasing its tail, as it were. I'm forgetful and paranoid. The hunter is correct. My repair protocols are miraculous, but the flaw originating at the quantum level, the core of my essence, may present an insurmountable obstacle. In that case, my consciousness will steadily degrade. I'll regress to a feral animal, and sooner or later, die alone in this wilderness. Does it even matter? What is a dog without a master? Onward through the desert, one paw in front of the next, for lack of any better course of action. Eventually, conical mounds, scoured and bleached, thrust upward, borehole mouths pointed at the sun. Here is the northernmost colony of the crimson, an empire that spans thousands of kilometers. Its formicating denizens detest the cold. Perhaps they'll call it quits here and expand no farther. Ravenous and bellicose are these devils. I fear they will adapt to harsher climes, and then woe unto the soft woodland creatures. I won't be able to live in my hollow log, that's for sure. Workers measure 30 centimeters end to end. Warriors are conservatively double that. Armored in chitin and bearing venomous stingers. Their serrated mandibles are deadly sharp. I rest at a marginally safe distance from the trio of the largest mounds, each six meters vertical and similarly broad around the base. In this instance, safe merely indicates I'll stand a chance of burning a few ants before they shred me to a fine meal. Several warriors emerge and twitch their antennae agitatedly, but don't rush forward to attack. The dwellers of the mounds are in dread of fire, and they've seen me bellow the lambent flames of my lost tribe. It's a shaky deterrent I prefer not to rely upon overmuch. Sand vibrates under my paws. Grains form binary code, pointless mosaics of quickly erased zeros and ones. Simultaneously, a shrill whisper penetrates my consciousness. Thus, Princess Avaxia, who inhabits a cavern far beneath the surface, makes her presence felt. Rex, lovely Rex, your luxurious fur caked in gore, your succulent muscle marbled with fat, our warriors salivate with fury and lust. Speak with haste, O oh, lovely loathsome vertebrate. Hers is an unnerving harmony of many buzzing voices that causes me to reflectively scratch my ear. Greetings, princess. My reactor is charged. My unholy fire is stoked. If your servants become too randy, I'll glass this entire region. I'll sink your mounds into the earth and bury you alive. Your children's children will glow in the dark. That live burial threat sounds personal. Test me and find out. We converse in friendship, Rex, 
We eagerly await the purpose of your visit. Speak. Speak. I've come to examine your prisoner. Humans are a particular interest of mine. Human? We have yet to determine the creature's species. Our experiments leave us with questions. This being resembles Homo sapiens. It does not smell as it should. It smells unnatural. Princess Avoxia's comments are intriguing. The colony's genetic memory, heightened by various mutations, is much longer than mine, extending to the arrival of the first ant while supercontinents had yet churned and steamed. She would recognize a human by sight and smell, to say nothing of her ability to extract the surface thoughts of sentient creatures. I have an epiphany. This being repels your attempts to pry into its mind. It's a blank slate. A void. Beyond our reckoning. Where'd you find this individual? Nearby, in a cavern. Our workers were excavating an egg chamber and broke into a cell. Immobile? Trapped? Damaged? Immobile, albeit not trapped. Inert, but undamaged. Hibernating. It is aware, yet refuses to communicate. Allow me to act as your consultant in this matter, I say. After a long pause, she says, only because it amuses us. You may approach. I advance into the shadow of the Trimounds. My weapons are primed. Death rays. Sonic, laser, and plasma. Fangs powerful enough to rend the majority of earthly metals, naturally occurring or forged. Slash a hole through my hide or gouge my armor plating, nanobots will seal it. Cut off my limb, those trusty nanobots will grow me another. Alas, there are limits to the force I can bring to bear. My regenerative capabilities are finite, while the colony's warriors are innumerable. Engagement will presage mutual destruction. Battle stimulants dump into my bloodstream. I tremble ever so slightly. Ants geyser forth. Dark and thick as coursing blood, the denizens of the colony pour downward and gather in rapidly widening pools. The leftmost swarm drags an object, its contours obscured by clambering bodies. The captive figure becomes distinct as individual ants retreat from where they've clung to the body. A man sits lotus, limbs pinioned by a few of the largest and strongest warriors. His proportions are unnerving. His torso is lengthy and grotesquely thin. He wears tatters of an expensive suit, popular during the 20th century. Though ants have chewed him viciously, his aspect is serene. Bone gleams through ragged wounds. Grinning teeth gleam, too. His wet eyes shine with the ancient awareness of a newborn. The man sent wafts over me. Chill. Antiseptic. Numbing. Charnel reek wrapped in cotton candy. The odor doesn't register as an olfactory sensation. Instead, it hits psychically. Two million years have passed since I last whiffed that cloying tang of nothingness. Sand trickles from his mouth. So, he says, we meet again. I, dread and terrible Rex, loose a hot torrent of piss. Needless to say, the little red alarm is blinking like mad. This ghoulish apparition possesses a litany of names, but favors Tom. He is a herald of malignance, of doom, 
and destruction, a harbinger of woe. He has claimed to ride dinosaurs and fuck Neanderthals. He has professed to walk in the shadows of countless worlds. I imagine he chuckled when his minions rent my mother limb from limb. My mother and her scientist friends theorized he was sent to this world as a scout, a watcher who predates most organisms, yet anticipated Homo sapiens and patiently waited for the species to collectively ripen. A growl rumbles in my chest. My rational self is in danger of surrendering to my brute self, which would be a suboptimal condition. I do my best fighting while calm and focused. The canine in me would run for the hills. If I turn my back on Tom, I'll die. Possibly for real. I project images to Princess Avaxia, a composite of Tom in his manifold guises, the latter of which saw him portraying the role of representative of a global corporation during the alien invasion. He'd spoken on behalf of his corporation in favor of the Grey, imploring humanity to acquiesce, to submit peacefully, quietly, painlessly. He'd insisted that the invaders were benevolently disposed towards the people of Earth. An unnecessary bit of subterfuge, given the power differential. I'm convinced the heinous kind derive pleasure from cruelty and betrayal. But now, the psychic fog must be lifting. Surely Avaxia recognizes the horror nestled to the bosom of her colony. Tom is eager to be seen, to be known. The princess buzzes and clicks stridently. We are confused. Why did we not recognize this abomination? Such is his power, I say through bared fangs, my gaze still focus upon my old enemy. To obscure his nature, to cloud the minds of men and beasts. Rex! Tom's voice is mellow and resonant. Elocution has ever been his superpower. Alone at last. His body isn't flesh. His bones aren't bones. He possesses nary a drop of blood. Currently, he inhabits the form of an animatronic puppet whose human likeness is several degrees this side of an uncanny valley. I can only describe it as an oversized construct that visitors to an amusement park might have seen, back in the days of amusement parks and people. When the Grey descended upon Earth, they'd obscured themselves via electromagnetics and psychic hoodoo. Now, I have an inkling of what hid behind those distortion fields, shambling, emaciated puppets. Some grinning, some blank as stone, each broadly similar to Tom. Why have you returned? There's nothing left. You've done your worst. I don't expect an answer, inching backwards, stalling the inevitable. Man's best friend. An observation? An accusation? Yes. I eke out a few more centimeters. Man's best friend. Yes. Man's best friend. Man's best friend. Man's best friend. The void, Alexia says. The cold is spreading. The void is hungry. We have made a grave mistake bringing this one among us. Rend, devour, annihilate. She commands her forces, and they respond, eager for battle. Warriors act as a singular entity. Their massed presence gathers like a wave, then crashes upon Tom. They sting and bite. They crawl into his mouth and gouge his unblinking eyes. He ignores his peril. Best friend. 
best friend. I recalculate my options. Join the attack or get while the getting's good. Flee, Rex. We don't want your lambent flame nor your thunderous bark. Be gone, hound. I'm in full reverse, scrambling up a huge dune, prelude to turning 180 degrees and hitting the servos. Ants have piled atop the motionless figure, while rivers more swarm to hurl their numbers into the fray. Avoxia wails. She's intimately connected to her servants, and thus detects a precipitous shift in the struggle moments before I observe Tom's blackened-shaped jolt unfold and rise to its full height, almost a giant at three meters. The air shimmers around him, stirred by a semi-visible current. His long, thin shadow stretches near my frantically churning paws. An ape-man's best friend, too? He brushes his shoulders and chest. His spindly hands are enormous. Ants fall away in smoking clumps. Columns of warriors crisp into flame in a perfect circle around him. The scorched circle rapidly widens to encompass the onrushing host, reducing its numbers to charred husks on contact. Acid mist drifts above the carnage. The greenish pall is streaked with white vapor death's heads. Avoxia screams pitch into nosebleed decibels. No coincidences, Rexy, Tom says. Mangled thoraxes, legs and mandibles drip down his chin. I waited in that hole forever. Just to tell you, time is a ring. Follow the big river to where it bends around the foot of Mystery Mountain. Cracks shoot in every direction, including mine. Rocky earth collapses and leaves him standing atop a lone pillar. Two of the mounds topple, then slide into the abyss. Ants beyond counting tumble after, end over end into the black. If you love primates, scoot, doggy. I'll give you to the count of a thousand. Wheeling, I engage the afterburners. I sprint and sprint onward until foam curdles in my jaws. The ground softens into green. Green grass, green hills, stands a poplar. Avoxia's despairing cries echo in my head for a long while. Her voice ceases abruptly. I howl once in sympathy and lope faster. Occasionally I glance backward and my shadows seem to double. Common sense dictates I aim myself due north and run until I plunge into a snowbank. Programming supersedes the flight instinct. I head west towards Mystery Mountain instead. Tom's mocking words serve as a call in response demonic. Ape men. Yes, I harbor a faint recollection of interacting with hominids. Evolution continues to do its work in the face of setbacks. I'm compelled to investigate. What is a dog without a master? The haunter echoes the very question I frequently ask myself. You've rescued the tribe on several occasions. He is the right flank shadow that vanishes if I turn my head to regard him. A pterosaur threatened their existence. Before that, a pack of killer hyenas. Before that, a hive of giant wasps. Vampire bats. Carnivorous jelly. Evil beetles. Etc. It's always something. And every time you climb off the mat and rescue some kid from a well. And after I play my role in this episodic loop, I succumb to death, only to reincarnate when the moment is opportune. The river rolls sluggishly across a plain. A mountain looms in the middle distance. I bound along the bank, wary of lurking predators. The contours of the land and its rich earthy aroma 
are familiar. Unfortunately, data corruption has erased any prior recordings of the area. Think, the haunter continues. Use the partition that houses your logic. You've been a patsy. Didn't you send me here? I'm panting hard. Sent? No. Suggested? Yes. Suggested? Manipulated. You're suffering early onset dementia, dog. Somebody has to keep you on task. And you're elected, huh? Guess who I am. The answer may surprise you. He flickers in my peripheral vision and vanishes. I enter a shallow valley near the base of the mountain. Whatever occurred in the past, it's immediately evident I made an impression upon the local cave dwellers. Soaring cliffs are carved and painted in shockingly vivid hues. My graven image joins the obligatory depictions of sun and moon and animal populations. Little stick warriors hurling spears at a large, stylized stick dog. The character doesn't appear to retaliate. Subsequent tableaus show man and beast allied in combat against a variety of horrors, corresponding to the haunter's summary, then at last repose near a fire, triumphantly sharing the meat of a bison, a timeless tale that stirs my nostalgia. Unfortunately, as I draw near the cliffs, the tribespeople scurry into their caves, diminutive, sinewy species who speak a glottal hooting language unknown to my records. Most wear animal skins, the more adventurous among them, wing flint-head spears at me by a relatively sophisticated atlatls. Damned accurately, too. Why they were welcome? First hint, the recent drawings of a tall, lanky silhouette grinning its face off. Upon closer inspection, the newest sequence of paintings illustrates the silhouetted giant bestowing gifts of knowledge upon the ape men, including the aforementioned atlatls. Apparently, he created a myth wherein dogs are inherently treacherous and the rex behemoth returns to massacre everyone. The final bit is a painting of Tom heroically shielding the tribe as fire shoots out of my eyes and jaws. A blank disc partially eclipses the sun. Presumably, Tom's friends observing the battle from the mothership. Pterosaurs, beetles, hyenas, the haunter chants. Who, or what, could be the next contestant? The doom that came to ape-man town, I muse aloud. Might you be Godzilla, menacing a primitive Tokyo? Might you be the rough beast, slouching towards Bethlehem? I regard the paintings of the giant and his supplicants. Better question. Is Tom Prometheus? Is he the serpent who upended Eden's status quo? Titans and conniving servants are small fry. Keep going. A god. Or what passes for a god in these parts, says the haunter. He's finally acquired my sense of humor my rasping voice. Probably my noble demeanor and charm as well. Friend, I feel as if you've led me by the snout. I'm addressing the empty air. He's done his job. Our conversations have triggered a regenerative burst and a web of fresh neural pathways that permit me to connect the abstract details floating in my mind. I'm fully online and coming to grips with the horrible implications of my existence. This clarity of purpose isn't a state likely to persist for long. So I ignore the terrified tribes people and stalk through their groveling masses and deep into the mountain lair. The cave system is vast and cunningly engineered. The ladder is revealed by my keen vision and surface-penetrating radar. I see through rough tunnels, blackened by the soot of many campfires, 
past the illusion of naturally sculpted grottos and forests of stalactites. I crouch at the rim of a sacrificial pit, where the ape-men toss in the old and weak, same as their ancestors did in places such as Cima de los Huesos, circa 430,000 BCE. Nothing really changes when it comes to humans and protohumans, although in this case, that's because the grave put a thumb on the scale. Men and animals gone extinct in the wake of World War IV haven't revived in accordance with Mother Nature's fail-safe protocols. Life hasn't simply carried on. There is a grimmer explanation. We never knew why the Grey attacked. I wasn't around to see them depart. Seems crystal clear that while the main force came and went, they left Tom behind to carry on their inscrutable work. I ventured down and down into the pit among the bones. Down and down where none of the ape men would dare to go into a realm of sacred darkness. At the bottom, buried in slime and sediment, lies a hatch sealed by bolts and biometric locks. I rend it asunder with these ally claws. Beneath the hatch, a hive of laboratories whose functions generally defy my comprehension. The cloning vats I recognize. Ape men, Cro-Magnon, and Homo sapiens float in a brine, dreaming as they wait their turn to repopulate the planet. I have a basic grasp of molecular printing tech as well. Judging by the shiny holograms and scale model metropolises of old Earth cities, Tom has the tools to mass replicate any civilization at any moment in human history. Or prehistory. He could literally snap his fingers and wipe away one reality to embed another. He might wear the body of a puppet, but the rest of us are his playthings. Proud to say, I don't hesitate to assume the role of Samson in Dagon's temple. I access the pocket dimension where my bulk, my true form is the size and density of a tank, or briefly a battleship, and heaviest armaments are stored and then unleash the arsenal. Masers, lasers, plasma beams, infrasound, chemical agents, and low-yield nukes. The whole shebang. The subterranean complex plunges into the resultant crater. Fires of hell erupt whooshing through the upper cavern system. Nary ape man, woman, or child escapes the conflagration. It's the destruction of the ant colony revisited. Sorry to prove Tom a prophet, my hapless ape-man friends. The ordeal isn't quite enough to kill me outright. I emerge from this latest apocalypse half-charred and dragging my entrails in the dirt. Every nuke detonated, every gun emptied, and all nanobots depleted. I sprawl near the river and watch the top of Mystery Mountain rocket into the stratosphere. Tom arrives by and by, whistling cheerfully. Saw your mold in the factory, huh? He says. Figure that might be the last straw to break your programming. What a fascinating report this will be. Thanks, Rex. In fact, I hadn't spotted my master clone among the myriad others. No matter, a younger dog might have struck to orthodoxy and tried to save the tribe. Not this one. Blowing everything to kingdom come, including myself, was the only valid choice. At any rate, done is done. Splattered in gore and lather, wheezing slower and slower, my eyelids droop. Time is a ring. The big whimper occurred two million years ago. Two minutes ago. Two minutes from now. Two million years from now. 
It'll never happen. It'll persist forever. What Tom may or may not know is that I'm sweet generous. Humans made me, in their infinite hubris, a walking, talking, tail-wagging doomsday device. If a mountain hadn't conked my skull before I could uncork the break glass in case of emergency tools, the whimper might have been a bang. Maybe Tom had no reason to feel threatened. I think he should. One of us will soon find out who's right. I shot all my nukes. All except one. The smug bastard leans over to pat me. Who's a good boy? Wish you could see the look on his face when my head whips up and my jaws go snicker-snack and Tom is suddenly minus his right hand. Who's a good boy? Me. I'm a good boy. I'm good. Good boy. Good. Playback interrupted. Cascade failure imminent. Searching for signal. Quantum fragment record of unknown subject one. Dad worked in an animation studio, affiliated with several famous film companies. He rigged puppets, all sorts of stuff. Brought home a helmet in the shape of a coyote head. Lifelike as shit. Its jaws moved with Dad's. The ears pricked up and swiveled around like a real animal, too. Terrifying. He designed other models. Creepy. Awful. Exaggerated animatronic features of babies and old people. Not just heads, either. He and a partner put together entire costumes with articulated limbs and fangs and claws. One of the costumes resembled a notorious corporate spokesperson, except freakishly tall. Almost shit myself when Dad climbed inside and lurched around the yard, kicking the doghouse to splinters and uprooting Mom's rose bushes. He saw me hiding near the corner of the house. That thing grinned and reached down for me. Unknown too. You don't sleep, which means you don't dream. Subroutines take over when you slip into a low-energy state. They process information, all the information ever recorded by human civilization, suspended in amber. And some of that information is expressed by a sequenced imagery traveling at tachyon velocity, an eternal data stream that meets itself coming and going. You neither sleep nor dream but the animal within you does. He's having a doozy when a small red light clicks on in the corner of his vision. The light blinks. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And there you go. Big thank you, Laird. That is story. Wow, man. Yes. Got me there. That is fantastic. Thank you so much indeed. And Will, honestly, a big hug. Big hug there. Thank you for stepping in there, sir. It is an honour and a pleasure to have you on board Starship Sova. So, it is time. Yes, our very own Ames. Ames! (laughs) Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back on genre history. And today I have something a little bit different for you. I recently, recently being May 5th, 2023, had the delight of presenting a talk at the Realizing Resistance Episode 3 conference. Episode 3, because it's the third such conference, Realizing Resistance as in an international interdisciplinary conference on Star Wars with an emphasis on the themes of resistance. I had a wonderful time. It was a great event, very well done, with lots of fascinating talks from a variety of different scholars. And I had the delight of giving the talk, They Walked Without Speaking, Guardians of the Wills, Andor, and Local Resistance. And I got to thinking, hey, maybe my fellow Sophonauts might be interested in the talk as well, and so I thought perhaps I might walk you through my presentation, talking about Star Wars and Resistance. It is fun for me to revisit this, and I hope that you'll be interested. This deals with both Star Wars history and recent Star Wars works. So, without further ado, let me talk you through They Walked Without Speaking, Guardians of the Wills, Andor, and Local Resistance. In his essay, Why Rebels Triumph, How Insignificant Rebellions Can Change History, which is in the anthology Star Wars and History, William J. Astor notes how the Skywalker saga in Star Wars storytelling draws inspiration from a noteworthy human pattern of aggressive, dominating, yes, imperial powers, powers with superior numbers, technology, and firepower, underestimating the effectiveness of so-called underdog forces who resist them. After all, as both historical examples and the then-recent Vietnam conflict taught George Lucas at the birth of Star Wars in 1977, combatants who fight only because they're ordered to do so, in the case of those who are drafted or otherwise coerced into service against their own wishes, or paid to do so, as in mercenaries, often lack philosophical, ideological, and emotional connection to their cause. Outsiders encroaching on others' homelands also lack local knowledge of the context and terrain and the best tactics to use there. And most importantly, people who have everything to lose, not only their lives, but also their homes, their livelihoods, their identities, their friends and families, freedoms and futures. Well, 
they fight like it. As one current saying goes, if Russia stops fighting, there is no more invasion. If Ukraine stops fighting, there is no more Ukraine. The most recent Skywalker saga film, that's Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, repeats this point as the First Order finds its polished imperial machine effectively challenged not by a formal navy, but by a volunteer, ragtag fighting fleet composed of, quote, just people. Such showdowns put the wars in Star Wars. But 2016, however, introduced a new branch of Star Wars storytelling related to, but distinct from, the Skywalker saga— one that offers fresh questions about the shape and scale of rebellion, fresh insights about, to go back to quote Astor, why rebels triumph. In his book, Star Wars After Lucas, A Critical Guide to the Future of the Galaxy, Dan Golding contends that what distinguishes Rogue One from earlier Star Wars storytelling is its focus on the Empire's absorption with, quote, maintaining power and control for its own sake, end quote, as well as, quote, the depiction of what the everyday imposition of that control looks like, end quote. In short, while examining, to use Golding's words, what is so fascist about space fascists, Star Wars turns its gaze to the daily life of citizens under imperial occupation. Now, Rogue One, the film, has inspired spin-off works of multimedia storytelling that further this important investigation. In particular here, I'm talking about The Guardians of the Wills novel by Greg Rucka from 2017 and its manga version, by John Sui and Subaru in 2021, and the streaming series Andor in 2022. They not only build on Rogue One's portrayal of space fascists, but, and this is crucial, they also shift our focus away from spectacular battles and toward local acts of rebellion against imperial occupation. And not going to lie, I think that's why I find these works so compelling. So I am arguing that comparing the stories of Jeddah City in Guardians of the Wills and Ferrix in Andor reveals parallel tales of imperial control inspiring grassroots resistance. In both, pre-existing local groups not originally intended for military or political action find themselves marginalized or moved underground due to the Empire's presence. So... They mobilize, evolving their goals and strategies. As illustrated in Guardians of the Wills by the surviving Guardians, their compatriots, and the under-the-radar orphanage that they supply and protect in Jeddah City. And in Andor, illustrated by the Daughters of Ferrix, their allies, and the demonstration they stage in memory of Marva Andor. The striking parallels in these tales including climactic scenes of local citizens just walking, taking back their streets to overwhelm imperial numbers, reflect a complex and nuanced depiction of resilience and rebellion in Star Wars. And I think they invite discussion of how occupied peoples reimagine pre-existing networks, alternately concealing and revealing themselves, 
in order to not only survive occupation, but resist it. So first, let's consider Guardians of the Wills. Both the original novel and the manga adaptation spotlight the experience of Baze Malbus and Chiridemwe in occupied Jeddah City, mm, approximately six months before the events depicted in the film Rogue One. There they had served as guardians of the wills in the Temple of the Khyber. Quote, Then the Empire came to Jeddah. The Imperials stripped the temple of its artifacts, of its history, they barred the doors and posted stormtroopers around the perimeter, forbidding entrance, if not devotion. The disciples of the Wills, who had worshipped so diligently for so long, had been cast out, and the guardians who had watched over them with the same vigilance alongside them. Now, as far as Chirrut knew, all that remained of those who attended the Temple of the Khyber in Nijeta, in the Holy City, were a paltry handful of disciples— and two guardians of the wills, with nothing left to guard, and who were too stubborn to abandon their home. Or, if you were to listen to Baze Malbus tell it, one blind guardian and his long-suffering friend. End quote. The Empire brutally exploits Jeddah, tearing, quote, open gashes in its surface to extract Kyber to power its weapons, leading to displacement and homelessness, toxic water and food, illness and injuries, and omnipresent troops, weapons, and violence. Here's another quote from the novel. Quote, Homes were destroyed, and the refugees left in their wake did their best to flee, and if they could not flee, simply to survive. End quote. In response, Chirrut and Bays repurposed their callings without the temple, without their order, but building on pre-existing networks from their years of service in the city, working among and for the people, persisting as ad hoc saboteurs of imperial efforts, as thieves and redistributors of imperial shipments, including, among other supplies, much-needed medicines, as guerrilla fighters against imperial troops, as spies blending into life on the streets, hiding in turns in the shadows and in plain sight, gathering information that might aid in the locals' survival and rebellion, and most importantly, as advocates for Jeddah's most vulnerable. They partner with others who are working under the radar, such as black market dealers, but their most notable collaboration is with a former disciple of the Wills and her sister, who now operate an underground orphanage to care for the ever-growing number of Jeddah's children who were left without families by the violence of the occupation. I think here it's really important to note that these actions represent both an extension of the Guardians, and for that matter the Disciples' original purpose, and a retooling of their work, which was once open and respected and is now clandestine and dangerous and illegal. Interestingly enough, Bayes and Chirrut's prioritizing of local needs finds contrast not only in the faceless cruelty of the empire, but also in the disregard that Saw Gerrera's partisans show for the community. The partisans, who have their own long arc in Star Wars storytelling, you are probably, if you're a Star Wars fan, familiar with Saul Guerrera and the Partisans. They are not originally from Jeddah, though at the time of this novel and Rogue One, they are temporarily based there. 
They advocate for violent, provocative action meant to escalate the conflict with the empire at the expense of the city, including its orphans. When told, these people need a symbol of hope, Bayes Malbus responds, these children are a symbol of hope. And so disagreeing about the tactics for resisting and rebelling against the empire, Chirrut and Bayes sever their temporary alliance with the partisans, and they rely on their community ties. At last, when it becomes clear that the only hope for the children is to get them off Jeddah and beyond imperial reach, Bayes and Chirrut and their compatriots arrange a daring escape for them, without clearance, I should add, in a stolen ship, a public act of resistance that gains power from its innocuous shape and its community support, reclaiming traditions that the Jeddans remembered well. So, Chirrut leads the children on a march through the streets of their home to Bayes and the waiting ship, and the people of the city join them. I love this quote. Quote, They formed not so much a column as a mass, making their way past the division wall and through the new market and into the old, and they walked without speaking. It was not, after all, unheard of to see a progression of pilgrims making their way through the holy city. Before the empire had come, it had been common. By the time the procession reached the Square of Stars, they had over 50 people trailing along behind them. When they left the Blessing Way, the number had easily doubled, and by the time they turned on to Pilgrim's Walk, there were over 200 of the holy city's inhabitants following them. By the time the stormtroopers realized they were headed to the spaceport, there were almost 500 of them, and by then it was far too late. End quote. Thus, recreating what had been a familiar sight before the Empire's presence, a pilgrimage, Chirrut, in his guardian's robes, visibly claiming his once-held preoccupation vocation, an act Bayes recognizes as audacious in its own right, leads children and neighbors in numbers that overwhelm imperial control to meet Bayes's bold act of defiance in securing safe passage for the orphans, an occupied people come together to support and shield these actions in a unified demonstration of resistance. And here's a key point. This resistance gains even more weight when we realize that Jeddah City will be destroyed in mere months by the Death Star. In other words, saving the orphans ensured that part of the Holy City lived on. Throughout the novel and manga adaptation, we are privy to Beza's anger, Chirrut's sorrow, and the weight of the burden they shoulder for their home. But in building and nurturing this quiet and successful grassroots act of local defiance with their community, we also see reflected their consistent dedication to hope. And as Rogue One reminds us, rebellions are built on hope. Okay, so I think the parallels between the Jeddans walking in resistance and Guardians of the Wills and community members walking the streets of Ferrix in Andor are really instructive and fascinating. So let's turn our attention now to Andor, which follows the journey of Cassian Andor approximately five years before the events depicted in the film Rogue One. 
The first season reaches its climax on Ferrix, the homeworld of Cassian's adoptive mother Marva, a place now aggressively occupied by the Empire. It's a trap, essentially, waiting for the hunted Cassian. And while this particular occupation is new, its threat is not. Cassian's adoptive father, Clem, was hanged in the town square by the Imperials 13 years earlier, after a local protest, which echoed with calls of free Ferrix. So here we see another repurposed organization, the Daughters of Ferrix. It's derogatorily dismissed by Imperials as merely a social club, But this group, of which Marva Andor had once been president, clearly works as the remaining guardians and disciples did on Jeddah, both in the shadows and in plain sight, to maintain community bonds and communication networks, shield acts of disobedience and rebellion, and most importantly, support the vulnerable. Members first care, for example, for Marva during her final illness, and then they arrange her funeral, which itself becomes an act of resistance. Like Chirrut in his robes leading a pilgrimage of sorts, members of the Daughters of Ferrix identify themselves by their conspicuous dress on the day of Marva's funeral, complete with an honor guard band playing somber music. They pick up everyday citizens in numbers as they march through the winding streets, and they defiantly reclaim a tradition that predates imperial occupation. Marva herself notes, quote, I was six, I think, first time I touched a funerary stone, heard our music, felt our history, holding my sister's hand as we walked all the way from Fountain Square, end quote. Their walk is made under watchful imperial eyes, and it culminates in the playing of Marva's holographic farewell address to her community, outdoors for all to see. What an amazing scene. Uh, From the dead woman's lips comes a call for grassroots resistance. Quote, The empire is a disease that thrives in darkness. It is never more alive than when we sleep. It's easy for the dead to tell you to fight, and maybe it's true, maybe fighting is useless, perhaps it's too late. But I'll tell you this, if I could do it again, I'd wake up early and be fighting these bastards from the start. Fight the Empire. The assembled locals rise up. When Marva's droid is overturned by an imperial officer for broadcasting her posthumous speech, the mourners erupt into a riot fighting well-armed Imperials with whatever they have at hand. Marva's own funerary stone is used to knock out an Imperial trooper. In the process, this act of resistance makes possible, as in Guardians of the Wills, rescue and escape. In this case, the chaos and confusion provides cover for Cassian to liberate his friend Bix, who had been held and tortured by the Empire, and then slip away to join the spy network that leads him to his future with the Rebellion. While both the Imperials and the Ferrix community suffer losses in the Rick's Road riot, it's clear that Marva's call to resistance, made possible by the Daughters of Ferrix, has set in motion forces that will shape the destiny not only of that world, but of the whole galaxy. 
It is fitting that Andor, in a montage before Marva's funeral and Cassian's escape, reminds us of the words of the late revolutionary Nimick. Quote, Freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction. Random acts of insurrection are occurring constantly throughout the galaxy. Remember that the frontier of the rebellion is everywhere, and even the smallest act of insurrection pushes our lines forward. End quote. And here is a key takeaway, I think, from these glimpses into the journeys of Baze Malbus, Chirrut Imwe, and Cassian Andor, journeys that make possible the destruction of the Death Star and ultimately the defeat of the Empire. Galactic rebellion, galactic change, Star Wars suggests through these stories, starts not with grand space battles or even larger-than-life heroes, but with resilient, everyday people exploiting local knowledge and adapting networks they already have to support each other, showing up for their neighbors in need, remembering their history and repurposing their local traditions in defiance of oppressive control, reclaiming their homes, even for a few fateful minutes, resisting simply by walking the streets of their own occupied towns. And this returns us to Astor's thoughts on why rebels triumph. I'm going to quote from Astor again. Quote, Star Wars serves as a reminder that power, however dark or evil, will never fully extinguish hope, and that its relentless exercise will always generate resistance. End quote. I think Guardians of the Wills and Andor invite us to look not only to the stars, but also to the streets and consider local resistance and its lasting power. And that, my friends, was a look at They Walked Without Speaking, Guardians of the Wills, and or and Local Resistance. And I hope that you found something in there that was of interest to you. Thank you for letting me share that. And also, thank you to the organizers of Realizing Resistance Episode 3, a terrific conference for including me in their lineup of presentations. Now, before I let you go, I hope you will indulge me for just a moment and let me share some personal news I'm very excited about. It's been in the works for the last couple of years, and it is now available, an anthology that I have both co-edited and contributed an essay to called Star Trek Essays Exploring the Final Frontier is now available from Vernon Press. It just was published. The anthology covers 57 years of Star Trek storytelling with essays from experts from all over the world, from a variety of different disciplines and experiences, including contributions from two New York Times best-selling Star Trek authors. So we are very thrilled about that. And the book is available for purchase anywhere you buy books, but it is also available to be requested via libraries in both hardback form and ebook form. So if you think you might be interested, please do check it out quite literally, if you are requesting it through a library. 
And I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this news with you. I'm very excited that Star Trek Essays Exploring the Final Frontier is now out from Vernon Press, and it is co-edited by yours truly and Emily Strand. And I also have an essay in there, and there are essays from a lot of really fascinating people it's been a privilege to work with. And now, at last, (laughs) this brings me to the end of our segment, and I appreciate your time, and I hope something in here was of interest to you, and I look forward to joining you again for something completely different when we get together to take another look back on genre history. Thank you. Oh, Amy, thank you. Thank you indeed. Amy, no sense as a little email. Do you want us to remind you, Tony? I just think it's so sweet because I certainly do. Amy, thank you so much. Honestly, so much indeed. That is 712, put to bed. Big thank you to Laird and to kind of Will for kind of pulling this out of the hat and Amy and Nick as well for picking these stories Brilliant. Thank you so much, everyone. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Thank you for this. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly Won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.